and there was literally someone talking about some ways that you can protect your organization based on your threat model. And people were like, what's, what's a threat model? What's threat modeling, right? And simply using simple language like, let's just talk about the worst possible things that could happen that we're going to try to avoid. What things do we want to make sure don't happen? You are listening to the Mindful Business Security Show, brought to you by Focivity, where we answer your questions and simplify information security for small businesses. Get the clarity you need to focus on the things that matter. Hello, hello, hello. You are listening to the Mindful Business Security Show. I'm your host, Accidental CISO. Welcome back, and I am glad you're listening. We're trying something new this episode. We are recording in person from the Focivity booth at the Securing Sexuality Conference in Detroit, Michigan. As usual, we'll be taking questions from small business owners and leaders that are attending the conference. I'm not sure what to expect, but I know it's going to be fun. (laughs) If you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe uh, in your favorite podcast app. My guest host today, has been in the information security field for 20 years in roles ranging from security operations center analyst to field CISO. Over the years, he's been a presenter, trainer, and keynote speaker at over 30 industry events, both in the United States and internationally. He's a board member for the Information Systems Security Association Chicago and a Chicago cyber community organizer. His interest in community and education has led him to be a co-founder of Hack for Kids, a nonprofit organization that teaches kids cybersecurity, safety, and ethics while encouraging their interest in STEM. If all of that isn't cool enough, he's an avid scuba diver and once taught a 50-pound dog to ride a motorcycle with him. I'm thrilled to have you join me on the show today. Welcome, Robert Wagner. Thanks for having me. This is very exciting. Yes, uh, this has been an awesome conference and I've enjoyed being able to hang out and spend time chatting with you. Before we dive into cybersecurity here, I have to know, how does one go about teaching a dog to ride a motorcycle? Because that sounds risky. So, and, and you know, I was all about removing any risk involved, for sure. Uh, but um, once, uh, once I realized he had the aptitude, he was uh, abandoned in my backyard okay. as a four-week-old, three-pound puppy. Aww. Yeah, um, in the dead of a Chicago winter. It was about eight degrees outside. Oh my gosh. Right. So I brought him in, and that summer I started learning positive reinforcement training. And I saw kind of the personality and aptitude that he had, and I'm like, I think I can teach this dog to ride motorcycle with me. So I introduced it to him in little tiny steps. Like literally, day one of his training was I started the motorcycle up on the driveway and let him listen to the sound from the backyard and gave him a lot of treats. The sound of the motorcycle was good, right? Yeah. And slowly we progressed to smelling the motorcycle and sitting on the motorcycle, starting the motorcycle. And it took about two weeks. But in two weeks, we were riding around the block for our first time. Yeah. Was he in a sidecar? Uh, No. (laughs) Right? You would assume. Uh, So when he started, of course, he was only about six months old. But he did grow to be 50 pounds. But he would actually ride on my lap. um, And I put a a piece of cartman remnant over the tank. Okay. So they had a little bit of grip. And then I also found a way to make kind of a safety harness for him. So in the event I did have to hit the brakes or something, he didn't go launching off the... But 
it never came into play. We'd have cats and squirrels run by us, and you'd be like, yeah, I can get that later. Right? I'm the fastest dog in the world right now. That is funny. Man, that's amazing. <laughs> and, and I think you mentioned he rode with you like that for 14 years For 14 so. years, yes. He was an amazing dog. He passed away a few years ago, but he was just my best companion, and he loved it. That's awesome. So I love hearing about what folks are doing to teach others and give back to the community. Right. You are a co-founder of Hack for Kids. Can you tell our listeners a bit about Hack for Kids, like what it is, what you're doing there? And sure, absolutely. Uh, so as most parents know, most little kids think hacking is cool. And, you know, they see it in the movies, they see it everywhere. Hacking's cool. So we've used that natural attraction they have to the space already to run a conference much like we would run a hacker conference uh, that has this allure for the kids. And while they think maybe they're learning hacking, they're really learning STEM skills. So we'll have various workshops, like there's one on cryptography, there's one where they can program battle bots to push uh, the bots out of the ring and things like that. There's even one where they can install Minecraft on a Raspberry Pi, and they think they're learning Minecraft. They're really learning Bash and a little bit of Python. So where, where do these events happen? So if like our listeners have kids that are interested in STEM and interested in these types of things, where can they find these conferences or sure. conferences that are partnered with you? So we throw our big conference, a full day conference um, in Chicago every year, right after Chicago public schools close for the summer. But we've run into many other conferences that said, we love what you guys do. Obviously, this is not our full-time job, so we can't be everywhere. So much like the way that B-Sides has created sort of a free franchise, we will help any other conference that wants to run a kid's track by sharing our intellectual property, coaching them through their first one. If we can, maybe we can come on site. We can only do a few of those a year, but otherwise we will actually teach people how they can run their own conference, just like Besides does by running you know, uh, uh, some meetings over the phone with their volunteers. So just the way any small business would go and standardize right. what they do to make repeatable processes. Yes. And, and they and can add to it too. We very much encourage people coming up with new ideas. Man, that is awesome. I, I, now I want to bring my kids to Chicago to, to, <laughs> we, to the we next conference this you. summer. Oh, geez, you could probably come up with a really cool activity, too. I know you could. That would be fun. So, so you've been involved in cybersecurity for a long time and have yeah. seen a lot of changes. Uh, is there anything going on today in the, the cybersecurity space that you're particularly excited about? <laughs> uh, excited or scared, it sometimes runs a fine line, right? So uh, I am excited uh, about the fact that people are starting to realize that there is so much, there are so many people that they could be pulling in InfoSec that they never thought of before, right? Breaking down the bar barriers for folks in unrepresented groups into InfoSec is really starting to gain some momentum now. And I think that's fantastic. Um, I, I literally know a woman who used to be a nanny before she got into InfoSec, and she is amazing. I mean, she runs circles around me. So, uh, so we need more of that, and we need to encourage it, but I'm seeing it happen at least. Yeah, and, and through that too, you know, the, as a small business owner, hiring somebody to fill an InfoSec role in your organization, you know, maybe a first InfoSec role or something, like hiring somebody from one of these non-traditional backgrounds or something right. may actually be a very good choice. And we talked about that in the first episode uh, of the podcast. So if, if you haven't heard that, you know, you can go back and listen to that first episode talking about hiring uh, and building talent um, in, to build a cybersecurity program. 
but yeah, I, I agree that what we're seeing right now with with the the diversity and bringing folks in, and the you know kind of the takeaway I think for our listeners is that 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 diversity diversity of background is a very good thing in cybersecurity because you think about things different. People that always approach problems the same way right. are generally going to solve problems the same yep. way, and they're not going to find new creative ways to solve the same problems when the old solutions aren't working well. Absolutely. And statistically, we've already seen that companies that create a diverse workforce for the business manage to think outside the box and be far more productive and, and, uh, and grow much yeah. faster. I, it, the same concept should absolutely apply to InfoSec as well. Yep. And if there was one thing, I ask this question to everybody because I, I love hearing everybody's answers. If there was one thing, you could wave a magic wand that you Oof. could just suddenly magically have every small business owner know and understand about information security. Like, mm. What would that one thing be? <sighs> God, it's hard to boil it down to one. But for small businesses, I think a lot of things, that, uh, one of the things that small companies don't realize is... Keeping it simple, stupid is one of their most effective tools. Companies that like say, you know what, Apple and, and Windows, they're, they're too much. Most of our folks don't need it. They're just doing email and writing some documents and some spreadsheets. Simply giving everybody a Chromebook instead, which is so much cheaper anyway, cuts their attack surface down so much. And then just simply adding to that maybe um, some sort of single sign or something like Okta, rather than worrying about an Active Directory setup for five people, is a super powerful defense that I don't think a lot of small companies know that they can do. They've just been so entrenched in Windows or more recently Mac for business that it doesn't occur to them that they can simplify things. And that actually fits in really well with my model of simplifying information security oh, right, yeah. for small business. Uh, that, that that complexity is the enemy of security. It's yes. the enemy of efficiency. It's the enemy of resilience yeah. a lot of times. And, and so keeping things as simple as possible is good for your yes. security. And so that's, that's a good take home for our <laughs> listeners. I appreciate that. That's awesome. So we've got some folks here with questions for us. Are you ready to answer questions and help <laughs> folks out? I'm, I'm very excited. All right, let's go. Do the cybersecurity risks to your business have you confused? Visit Focivity.com slash podcast. That's F-O-C-I-V-I-T-Y dot com slash podcast. And sign up to be a caller on a future episode. Our first caller on the line today is Valerie from Madison. Hey, Valerie, how are you doing and how can we help you? Good. Um, I'm a therapist and I'm wondering about all of the ways of trying to have secure communication because I know that Gmail is not and I'm in my own solo private practice. So I don't have a company that it, or like a, um, a clinic that can that has their own software. So I'm looking at starting that up. And, and tell us about some of the concerns you have around why you need secure communication and what's driving that. Well, sometimes clients will contact me via email. I try to tell them not to send anything personal or confidential, right. but sometimes I do have to send forms um, and that sort of thing, which is not something I like to do. So I use my fax when I can, but not everybody has a fax machine. <laughs> not anymore, yes. 
So in, in speaking with many of the clinicians here, I realized that some of them, while they've heard the term multi-factor or two-factor authentication, they don't know where in Google to even turn that on. So Google, while not the most perfect for privacy, can at least be secured by turning on multi-factor authentication. And it's not too difficult. There's, um, there's some primers out there to show you how to do it. Um, so you can go with that. But if you want to take that one step further, there are more privacy-oriented email services. ProtonMail is a good one. I don't know if you're familiar with other ones that I really like their model because they don't log anything. Yeah, I, I think for sensitive information in general, I generally advise staying out, not using email, simply because email as it was designed 30, 40 years ago, like security wasn't top of mind. And today, most email as it's delivered from one email system to another is encrypted, uh, but that's not guaranteed based on just the way email works. So I don't know that, I don't know the email necessarily the, the best way that I would recommend going with this. Um, I think I would look for potentially a, like a secure upload tool that you could send the person a link that they go back to this tool and then that has them upload files to this tool in the cloud. It could be as simple as you create a folder for each client in your Google Workspace or in your Microsoft uh, Office 365 like OneDrive account. And, and share that, and then they just upload to that folder. Without any investment, if you're already using one of those types of platforms, you could do something there. And when you share a folder like that, both of those platforms can authenticate you where they'll send a code or something back to that email to make sure that just because you have the link, you can't get access to that data. And that technique is great. You would have to make sure like you don't click anyone with the link, can it, right? You have to be very specific about how you shared, but that would be great. There's other platforms I think where I would look and, and there would be a little bit of cost associated with this, but I've seen it before with like accountants where they need you to provide financial data to them as they're getting ready to do your taxes and they'll send you a link. And then from there, it's almost like a secure messaging program where you can message back and forth, but you can also upload and attach files and that keeps it within a platform that's more secure than email. And then if you're dealing with HIPAA information, um, you would wanna make sure that you've got what they call a business associate agreement with that provider. And so any, any customer or any, any vendor, I'm sorry, that has a service that is HIPAA compliant, general, and they're, they're selling it as such, is, will be willing to sign a BAA. And that BA is basically a contractual a agreement, means. business associate agreement. That's the, the contractual terms between you and them that they're committing to protect this HIPAA covered data to the extent that you are required to cover it as well and that they will have controls in place for that. So I think that's that's probably where I would look at, at one of these, these tools that allows that upload. And then as an added benefit, just organizationally and your process flow, it's it's coming into a single point and you you know you're not digging for this information you know where it is you can go and find it and then put it wherever it, it needs to go you're not looking for email thread well where was that email thread where they sent me this it, it it's a, it would be a more efficient way as well operationally from you so that little bit of cost associated with that there may be a benefit in just time savings as well for you having to mess with this and be more secure for your patients and it and there's no chance then that they're going to have a, a mega mistake. Like if you tell them explicitly, give them instructions, use this tool, 
they're much less likely to make a mistake and send you information outside of that tool. Now, another question that's come up about secure communications, not only email, but um, many of these clinicians uh, are concerned about both the discovery and intercept of their text communications, right? Yes. Or even, or even say, like a secure phone call. And many of them have come to me and said, we know about Signal, but it doesn't say it's HIPAA compliant, therefore I can't use it. Yes. Which is actually not exactly correct, right? There are ways, strategies that you can use something like Signal if that's what you want to use. Or, or you had some other ones too that uh, were uh, yeah, so platforms, in the, right? In the HIPAA compliance space, there are clinical collaboration tools, uh, but they are much more collaboration tools for teams in more enterprise health systems like Simpler. Right. Uh, they integrate with a lot of health systems, they integrate with pager backends and are really designed specifically for that. When you get to much smaller practices, um, there's some other tools that can be HIPAA compliant for uh, communications. Uh, Trillion is one. Trillion's been around for a very long time. We used to, some of the, the techies may recognize Trillion as being a tech, uh, like an instant messaging client, but that it worked with AOL Instant Messenger right. and Yahoo and, some, and a whole bunch of other platforms through one client back in the day. Well, they've pivoted and they are now producing a HIPAA compliant messaging platform, texting platform Fantastic. Um, that, that folks can use. With a privacy thinking behind it, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and this is a fully hosted cloud environment uh, as well. They, they host the platform for you. Uh, and then Amazon has one called Wicker that's more similar to Signal, where it is encrypted from one device all the way through to the other device. But Wicker offers some additional features that Signal doesn't have when it comes to managing who has access, uh, okay. managing accounts, groups, teams, things that in a business environment with a team you may need. Which is great for a multi-person practice. Which is great for multi-person practice or yeah. something like that, with the caveat that Wicker Amazon is very clear. It is not HIPAA compliant unless you host the server yourself. Okay. If you if you just use their turnkey cloud system, it's not technically HIPAA compliant, uh, but you have to host it yourself. And the reason for that is discoverability. If you ever had to go back and figure out what data was accessed and by who, the self-hosted server is going to give you access to actual content of those messages, whereas their service doesn't, they're the hosted service. Uh, but then with, with a single person practice, Signal being a free tool may also be a very good way to go here as well. With the caveat, it doesn't, it doesn't allow you to manage users. So if you start to bring other people into your team, you may start running into some challenges there, but if it's just you and your client, Signal as a free tool is another way but there's an app that has to get installed on their phone or their PC or, or Mac to do it. Whereas if you went with one of these cloud-based messaging upload sites, it's all done in the browser and there's nothing to install. So, they don't so need there's a special there's, tool, right? There's trade-offs that you could do yeah. here either way. But for those comfortable with something like Signal on a single person practice, the nice thing is is that it doesn't have to have the HIPAA stamp of approval for you to use it. What you do need to do is document that this particular tool is not something that you're going to log and therefore sort of out of scope. Um, and that way uh, you can use it without having to worry that you're not HIPAA compliant anymore. Exactly, and it's, it's not a source of truth. Right. for your medical data or health healthcare information. You have other systems that are that source of truth, and this is just sort of a, a ephemeral 
ancillary system and yeah. you can document that policy that we don't back this up we don't log it we don't retain that data and if, as long as you've documented that stuff in general you you should be in pretty good shape there but it's the documenting it that's key you got to do that paperwork was this helpful yes yes very much thank you <laughs> thank you so much for coming by and asking us a question we really appreciate it all right our next caller here today is bianca from chicago bianca welcome to the show how are you doing and how can we help you um i'm doing great thank you for having me so i'm still using LastPass. it was recommended to me by a hacker friend many years ago but i've heard that they're having some problems or there's been some breaches of security should i still be using LastPass? if should i go somewhere else if so where should i go <laughs> so, yeah, this is this is one of those depends questions, right? Um, you, you know a bit more about it than I'm at. I mean, they've they've had more than one issue too. But yeah. at the end of the day, I think really the the reason that I hear a lot of security folks talking about don't use LastPass is because of this pattern that they've had right. with security breaches that may indicate that there are some organizational issues, systemic issues in the organization okay. that are impacting their information security program, their cybersecurity program that is making it difficult for them to secure, operate securely this platform. Okay. But at the same time, the encrypted nature of these vaults, the entire risk vector that this is supposed to protect from is that the actor, the, the, the bad actor, the criminal has access to the vault. Yeah. Uh, you know, so the fact that they've been breached and somebody has, has gotten that now, we're, you know, we're dealing with now that they get a shine for, you know, is their implementation of that encryption and stuff going to be good enough? Um, and there, there were some issues with that as well in the past where when folks signed up prior to a certain point, I think it was 2018 right, possibly, yep. they had some, some default settings that didn't enforce a long enough master password that potentially could be easy to, to brute force just by trying over and over again uh, a different pa uh, passwords. But they also, that is related to that, with the encryption, there is a configuration that sets the how many times it's going to encrypt the vault. So it encrypts your data and then it re-encrypts and re-encrypts over and over and over and over and over again. Each and time I, making it harder. For and okay. years ago, the default was like 5,000 times. Okay. It is generally accepted at this point in based on technology and what's available that that number really needs to be like, what, 100,000 or 200,000 or something. So they have since pushed out updates that have forced that change. And so folks that are LastPass users would have been prompted to re-encrypt their vault. And it, it happens relatively quickly, but it, it would have popped up a message and does this when you go to log in. Folks with weak master passwords would have been prompted as well to update their master password. And the piece that's really, really difficult about this that makes it so hard to say you know, how bad is that really is that vault is out there like that, that vault that was stolen, that's frozen in time. Okay. If it had a weak password, like you updating your, your vault now, you going, you know, configuring or them pushing out this thing to do more iterations of encryption now don't have anything to do with that snapshot of your vault that they stole that like they five stole months ago, okay. right? A long time ago. Um, 
I do hear also folks talk about because of this pattern, well, obviously the company doesn't care. Um, yeah. I don't know if I necessarily believe that. I think um, they're a big target is part of the they're, problem. They are, yeah. They're a very big target um, just in the industry. I, I do happen to know their their CEO. I do oh, happen awesome. to know their, their CISO. Our, our paths have, have crossed in the past. I know they're very smart, and I know they truly do care. So I, I personally don't believe that the folks who are in that organization today that are trying to fix these problems aren't capable of doing it. And it's that not a care. neglect issue. Honestly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, in the past, it may have been, but okay. they have some new leadership as well. Um, so I think to continue using LastPass at this point, as long if you've updated your vaults, uh-huh. encryption, with they have forced, they've pushed that out. If you have changed your master password and you have added multi-factor authentication, the technology itself is the way it's been implemented, at least in my understanding from reading the white papers and things, the way it's implemented is not drastically different than the way Bitwarden or 1Password (laughs) implement encryption, that sort of thing. There are some variations. 1Password does some stuff that's a little bit stronger. So if you were choosing a new one today, 1Password would be a very good one option to go with. Uh, Bitwarden is another one that, that one allows self-hosting. So if somebody, if a company wanted to host it themselves instead of in the cloud, they could. But that comes with its own risks. Yeah, you don't want to well. probably be your I own IT person. I wouldn't recommend that yeah. Yeah. to you. But this is more for Definitely our listeners not. who may be considering this. And if she really wanted to be secure, I think going back and just using the tool to change all her passwords. Yes, and that's going to be the key. Is right. Because if that vault, at some stolen, point, yeah. maybe we don't know. Maybe it was cracked last week okay. or, or last month. Or maybe it will be cracked tomorrow. Or two months for our next year. So it's like a ticking time bomb it, kind of situation. It could be a ticking time bomb thing. So really the best thing you can do to protect yourself at this time, as long as you've up, you've got a strong enough master password and stuff, is actually to go through and change your passwords. Oh my God. In there. But it will I have ADHD it that's going it to... It, it will step and, you through all But of you don't have to do okay. them all at once. Right. Yeah. You, know, okay. you can do a few. Start with the most critical ones. Yeah. You know, banking. Email, bank, yeah. E- email. If you have a, a Gmail account that is like tied to a lot of different things. Like, that you sure. use to authenticate yeah, to other sites. Those things that you would deem to be critical, like I would change them first. Okay. Make sure multi-factor authentication is enabled on okay. all of those. And then just start working through the others. LastPass and all these password managers have a feature too where able to if you are reusing passwords, uh-huh. any place where you have reused a password, uh-huh. you might prioritize those right. as sure. well. So that sure. they're all unique per site. Because one of the things with encryption too is if you're using the same encryption key and you don't know the data that's been encrypted, it's really difficult. To, to figure out what that data is. But if like you know some information about it, to be able to reverse engineer that encryption key gets a lot easier. So if you've reused a password on multiple websites and one of those websites happens to get also breached and that password now becomes known and that you've used that same password on uh-huh. multiple sites, now all of a sudden you have a feel where they know the the value that was encrypted, and they can look and see where what the encrypted version of that is at multiple places, and start working back to okay, how would you how would an encrypt this encryption algorithm have gotten from this value that we now know that is your actual password to this encrypted thing, sure. and they can start reverse engineering the key, and it takes much less computing power to do that than it does to, to brute force. So, you know, not having 
reuse passwords is going to be really, really, yeah. really critical here. And but starting with high priority ones, maybe prioritize reuse ones just after that. Fifteen and just, minutes a day. Just kind of start start going through. <laughs> and honestly, as you go through this, one thing you might consider is, do I need this account anymore? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Too. And if you get to an account and you're like, you know what, I don't need this account anymore. I haven't used this in five years. I, just log into that, delete it. Yeah. Like delete your account and whatever they that third party, if they allow yeah, you to. Yeah, that's the thing is it's like um, I have ADHD. I'm very bad with organizational yeah. and so stuff. And so this kind of gives you the oh. opportunity yeah. as like you go through to out. just check and just be like, you know what, that, that one I don't even need anymore. Rather than I need an intern password, to do this for me. Kill it. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> hey, maybe that's some ways for interns to get their first uh, consulting gig, there right? Go. As Help long as they don't know. steal my passwords, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but if you were, if you were, you know, kind of takeaways from this in my my mind is if you're looking to change to another one, one password's a very good option. Okay. Warden's also very, very good, but one pa password based on just some technical things about how they implemented it uh, are just slightly stronger. But it, it really just comes down to, to prioritization and right. the damage is, is, you know, already done and changing okay. from one to another is a lot of work. Yeah. Um, and so it is probably slightly less work than just changing your passwords in all of them. Gotcha. Getting your financial and email accounts right off the bat, okay. that, that takes out a big portion yeah, of the Yeah, and I can commit to doing at least that. Right. Yeah. So that makes sense. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was very helpful. Thank you. All Appreciate right. you coming on the show. Thank you. So, Robert, we've had good discussion here. Uh, great questions. Yeah, absolutely. From the great callers. Uh, you know, this has been a wonderful conference as well, sort of a hybrid with information security and a lot of folks from another field with their therapy practices and, and those right. types of things, uh, and coaches and, and therapists you know, and clinicians, lots of small business folks here in very small orgs, maybe right. one person practices Many or, or just a couple person practices. Um, you know, what from the, the callers we've had and just some of the things, conversations you've had here as you've been staffing the Ask a Hacker table right. this whole week. Um, what are some of your, your takeaways and themes that you've seen? Yeah, so um, for one, this community in particular deals with a lot of sensitive information. And not like sensitive to the security of the nation, but uh, sensitive down all the way to the personal level, right? This is people's mental health and physical health that are on the line. And so many of these practitioners are super concerned about the privacy for themselves and for their clients but they've spent their whole life studying medicine. They have. They don't even know most of the the um, the a lexicon of terms that we use. We were in a session where. Uh, Johnny Xmas was talking about just some basic hygiene things and turning on multi-factor authentication. And several people were like, I've heard that. How do I do that? How do I do that in Gmail? Can you show me? Uh, so I think there's a lot of ways our community could really help these people. But I also want to keep in mind something that uh, Eva Galperin from the EFS said in her keynote, which was, we all know the best ways to do it, right? The like secure as we possibly can ways. But for these one person practices, we need to be looking for 
the easiest ways for them to adopt some of these security um, uh, uh, designs and security uh, technologies into their practice with it being as small a lift as possible for them. Yeah, that's a good, really good point. Like, and that's part of, I think, why I dislike the term best practices because <laughs> right? best is subjective. Best is about a use case and a specific scenario and the context of the situation, whereas the term best practices it, it, it gets rid of all of that as if there's only one right best right. way to do this. And that's that's interesting. Something that has stood out to me in all the conversations I've had here is generally with you know businesses, small business especially, they generally are not targets right. of, of attacks. If they are attacked, it is generally more opportunistic. You know, it's equivalent of, you know, we left, forgot and locked the door and somebody noticed the door was unlocked. They came in and they stole something. Right. But it wasn't like that person came specifically looking to, you know, break in and steal that thing. They just, the opportunity was there and they took it. Yes. Um, Whereas some of these practices, even very small practices, they're in a situation and based on their patients as well, being sort of at risk population and, and those types of things where they politically now may become a target where their business, their practice could actually be a target because of the, you know, the the political environment that we're in and that somebody feels like this, you know, isn't, this isn't right. And we want to go attack this and we want to find out who their clients are so that we can publish information about their clients and try and hurt them in some way, which could be very, very damaging in these scenarios. Whereas if your local hardware store gets breached and somebody releases a list of their customers, well, that's generally not going to be quite as high impact of this. And so my, I guess my real takeaway here is it really drove home to me how every business really needs to step back as they're looking at security and and just think through what am I really protecting ourselves and our information from? Like what's the risk? What's the impact that we're really interested in protecting from and, and, and avoiding? given our scenario, that, that threat modeling is just a really, really important thing. And even though organizations are small, it's a critical first step to building any sort of security program because that just question, what are we worried about happening and what could the impact of that be becomes like that 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 first step. Yep. Everything else builds off of that and it informs every other decision after yes. that. And in fact, I was in a talk and we were, you know, we were just talking about the, the lexicon and the terminology that we as InfoSec people mm-hmm. use and there was literally someone talking about some ways that you can protect your organization based on your threat model and people were like, what's, what's a threat model? What's threat right. modeling, right? And simply using simple language like, let's just talk about the worst possible things that could happen yeah. that we're going to try to avoid. What things do we want to make sure don't happen exactly yeah yeah and uh, you know i have a a client that i work with today who they have decided in conversations of they've they've decided and articulated that we are less concerned about a security breach Mm -hmm. where so you know the breach is not what is going to kill us it's not going to end our business. business yeah what would end our business because it would completely break trust is the insider threat Uh, of fraud. 
if an entrusted really? insider in the organization committed fraud that impacted their client's financial you know interests right that is what would because they lose them. all their customers and yes. so just thinking through like for them that helps prioritize what are we truly worried about right. as we go through this? <laughs> and you know, even in small orgs, everyone's yeah. different and everyone's going to have a little bit different sort of risk profile right. and threat model, <laughs> yes. as, as you said. <laughs> so, Robert, before we wrap up and, and finish up, where can folks find you online if they want to reach out and follow up on anything? Uh, so at this point, especially because uh, of the major cesspool of some of the social media <laughs> platforms out there, um, you, you can find me at, at Mr. Minion, that's MR underscore Minion, but I don't, I, I've been shying away from some of those platforms. Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best place and it's just Robert Wagner uh, on LinkedIn. You should be able to find me. Um, just uh, search for Robert Wagner and Field CISO, and I should pop up. Very good. Thank you, uh, Robert. It, you know, I really appreciate you joining me on the show today. This was phenomenal. I've loved hanging out with you again here. Uh, you are so Detroit. much fun, and we had such fun guests too. It was fantastic. Yeah, and the, the, the guests, I, I mean, the show doesn't work without, without callers. And thank you, the listeners as well, like you listening today. Thank you. <laughs> you know, we're doing this for you. I appreciate you listening, and I especially appreciate you sharing it with others in your network that you think may want to hear this or may find this valuable. So uh, until next time, I'm Accidental CISO, and uh, stay mindful. Don't miss our next episode. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media. Visit Fosivity.com slash podcast. That's F-O-C-I-V-I-T-Y dot com slash podcast for show information and links to our social media pages. This has been the Mindful Business Security Show brought to you by Fosivity. Tune in next time when we'll hear accidental CISO say. Yeah, that, that privacy thing over in Europe. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not European, so I don't normally care. <laughs> <laughs>